The Energy Gang is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, the fastest-growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko has been in business for more than 100 years and has been making superior German-quality PV inverters since the 1990s. In fact, it's been manufacturing many of them right in San Antonio, Texas since 2013. With a wide range of residential, commercial, and utility-scale inverters, Keiko works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market, making it the preferred brand across the U.S. and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and service at keiko-newenergy.com. That's keiko, K-A-C-O-newenergy.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. In our first installment for 2017, we're going autonomous. For years, researchers have been working behind the scenes to improve autonomous vehicles. And all of a sudden, that work is playing out in a very public way. Top tech companies and automakers are testing new models on the streets, and regulators and city planners are trying to keep up with the pace of technological change. This year will likely mark the beginning of the commercial autonomous car era. And that brings us to the theme of the show this week. Will that era bring sweeping efficiency improvements to the transportation sector, or will it result in a chaotic, overcrowded hellscape for our streets? As our guest will explain, the decisions we make today will determine that fate. In the second half of the show, we'll examine Uber's attempt to help city planners by releasing data, and we'll have a brief retrospective on President Obama on his final week in office. I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts. It's been a while. Hello, Catherine. Hi, Happy New Year. You know nothing going on here in D.C. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a boring time over there. So uh, it's going to be a stretch to find interesting things to talk about this year, huh? Absolutely. And Happy New Year, Jigger. How are you? Good. Happy New Year. I actually already went to a ball, Catherine, in, in D.C. There was a ball um, celebrating the new Congress um, and the five new Indian American representatives. Wow, that's wonderful. I hope you had fun. It was a good time. Joshua Goldman is our guest this week. He's a senior policy analyst for the Clean Vehicles Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, where he focuses on everything related to cleaning up the transportation sector, which increasingly includes autonomous vehicles. Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I am ready to welcome our robot overlords. I'd like to start by quoting not a science fiction expert, but Charles Dickens, who, in A Tale of Two Cities, perfectly encapsulates what we're facing with autonomous driving. Quote, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. Indeed, we are facing two futures. One in which autonomous cars bring a low-carbon revolution to transportation, and one in which they make the sector dirtier, and more complicated. So let's pick up the story for our readers, Josh. Help us imagine each scenario. Let's talk about the dystopian future for autonomous vehicles first. Overcrowded streets, more people driving, therefore more miles driven, and potentially more pollution. What does that future look like in your eyes? Sure. Well, I think you hit on all the major potential negative consequences there. Um, but basically, 
when autonomous vehicles hit the roads in mass quantities, we will see a dramatic change in how transportation operates in, in the U.S. and beyond. So, for example, uh, when I'm you know, walking to the subway every day and I come across a stop sign and I want to cross the road, I typically you know, look uh, at the car approaching the stop sign and try to make eye contact with the driver before I cross. Uh, if that driver is in an autonomous vehicle, I'd probably be, be making uh, no eye contact with the driver and instead see them buried in either their uh, phone or a book or eating something and not paying attention at all. And instead, I would have to sort of just trust that the vehicle will come to a stop, which could be slightly terrifying. Um, then assuming that, you know, maybe I need to take a highway trip and I'm not driving an autonomous vehicle, uh, once I merge onto the highway, uh, I might need to... Uh, pass or see, you know, conga lines of uh, trucks traveling very close together at high rates of speed, much higher than we're seeing now. Um, and I might need to, you know, merge into traffic where that traffic is not necessarily operated by human drivers, but mostly by robot drivers. That means that while they might be a little bit more predictable, um, they might be going faster, they might be traveling closer together, and traveling uh, on highways might become a little bit more of a terrifying experience. Hey, at least you won't have people running across across the highway. <laughs> That's true. But actually, in that situation, an autonomous vehicle might need to make the decision of whether they need to avoid the person running across the highway and injure their passengers or protect their passengers and injure the person running across the highway. Now, as that situation would happen right now, I mean, that would be a human decision, right? But as autonomous vehicles enter the market, you know, how Will the software program the vehicles to make that decision for us? And then there are all sorts of liability questions that arise because of that. But aside from just making sort of highways you know, faster and potentially a little bit more scary for people not in autonomous vehicles, they could dramatically disrupt our economy. Um, trucking is the number one industry in many states in the U.S. And the trucking industry has a large incentive to increasingly move toward automation. Uh, as they do that, we might see uh, many truck drivers be left out of work and need to transition to other careers. And so, you know, automated driving won't just affect uh, the light duty market or regular passenger cars, but it will likely affect the, the heavy duty and trucking industry as well. And that's going to happen with taxi drivers, too, as we're seeing uh, shared ride and ride handling companies like Uber and Lyft increasingly you know, push toward uh, further levels of automation. Well, and I think that the other angle to this dystopian future is really around, you know, where you are now within the socioeconomic class, right? So if you've owned two or three cars yourself and you're, you know, live in the suburbs and you're going to the city and you're, you enjoy that time in your car where you can talk to people through your Bluetooth, et cetera, versus people who, you know, are taking an hour to get from one place to the other place using public transit right now that they could be able to do in 20 minutes with virtual public transit once Uber ride-sharing uh, platforms become as cheap as you're describing. It could be a huge boon for, you know, those folks on um, fixed incomes uh, while being slightly, you know, a little bit more inconvenient for folks that, you know, already own three cars. Yeah, it could. I mean, if we play that out a little bit further, um, autonomous vehicles, if they're uh, widely deployed, have the potential to dramatically reduce the amount of money that cities generate through parking, 
through speeding tickets, through other tickets. And so if autonomous vehicles both make it cheaper to drive and if they reduce the amount of income that cities are generating, cities are going to have a lot less money to spend on public transit and mass transit. And so one potential result, which should be avoided, is that cities won't have any money to spend on public transit, and therefore we're going to see reduced bus service, reduced you know, metro and, and subway services. And those services will probably hit low-income populations harder than medium to high-income populations. Because no matter how cheap an autonomous ride gets, it still might be unaffordable for some people who need to rely on, on public transit to get to work. We just breezed over a lot of potential impacts. We're talking about a complete disruption of certain sectors of the economy. We're talking about lost income for municipalities and states, um, liability problems for insurance companies, for auto manufacturers, a lot of confusion around who's liable during accidents. Um, problems with income disparity. I mean, who's going to benefit from these technologies first? This is like a remarkable set of potential problems that we're creating here with autonomous vehicles. And we haven't even gotten to the environmental factors yet. Right. And the environmental factors are potentially huge um, because autonomous vehicles will make it easier to drive, both in terms of cost and in terms of how we perceive the time we spend in vehicles. So right now, if people have to commute maybe 45 minutes to work in bumper-to-bumper traffic, you know, they value that time differently as they would if they could sit in a robot car and they could check their email, do work, listen to this podcast, you know, do anything other than driving. So that's going to make it easier for people to drive aside from the lower costs. So one study found that increasing levels of automation could result in a 60% increase in vehicle trips. If you increase vehicle trips or vehicle miles traveled without increasing the fuel economy of the vehicles or the vehicle's environmental performance, then we're going to see increased uh, air pollution, both in terms of greenhouse gases uh, and other public health concerns that arise from uh, criteria pollutants like particulate matter and ozone, etc. So in the absence of any policy directives that will incentivize the pairing of autonomous vehicle technology with clean vehicle technology, we could see a pretty dramatic rise in emissions from transportation, which is now the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. Yeah, Josh, that's where I was going to jump in. First of all, I wanted to ask, are most of these autonomous vehicle technologies being developed on electric vehicles? That was my first question. And then if that's what the goal should be, then how do we set forth policies that will enable those to be innovated and incentivized rather than just sticking new technology on old vehicles? Yeah, I mean, it varies. Uber has partnered with Volvo to release autonomous Ubers in Pittsburgh. And these Volvos are Volvos like mid to full size SUV that are gasoline powered, not electric at all. So in that instance, they're basically just sticking autonomous vehicle technology on an SUV. Um, Now, other autonomous vehicle industry players like uh, Google, etc., have been seeking to make autonomous vehicles electric, but it's that's not necessarily the future that we're looking at. And so 
you know, there are a couple policies on the books right now that could incentivize automakers and technology companies to make autonomous vehicles electric. The primary one being the California Zero Emission Vehicle Program, which requires automakers to generate credits for either selling electric vehicles in California or buying credits from another automaker who has sold electric vehicles in California. And in 2018, that policy is set to extend to nine other states that have adopted it uh, pursuant to the Clean Air Act. So if we were to extend that policy even further and create a national framework for requiring automakers or other vehicle manufacturers to sell electric vehicles, that would essentially prompt them to ensure that the autonomous vehicles they're coming out with will be electric. I can. I think it's the fair to main... say that that's not going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> no, it's not. Although, once the California Zero Emission Vehicle Program extends to those nine other states, collectively, those states make up over a quarter of vehicle sales in the U.S. So that is a pretty large market share. So let me take this from a different angle. I... I'm looking forward to autonomous vehicles. I mean, I'm probably going to buy an autonomous vehicle in the next few months. Um, you know, I was talking to Tom Matzi at Ethical Electric. He's got that Volvo XC90, I think, and um, looks pretty cool, right? It makes you, allows you to drive on the highway and, you know, be a little safer. And, and so I think that's pretty cool. I also choose to believe that I think that this is going to be great for low-income populations. I do think that the amount of time that they have to spend waiting for, you know, underfunded transit agencies will be cut down tremendously by, um, you know, services like Via and Uber and other things. I think the bigger question really here is that for the Union of Concerned Scientists, um, you know, you guys played a very pivotal role in, you know, between 2000 and 2003 around passing renewable portfolio standards around the country. And it was your analysis that actually was used by every public service commission and state legislatures to evaluate whether they should vote for RPS standards. And it feels like you're not at that point in autonomous vehicles where you've actually figured out what you're pushing for and you know what the legislation looks like and what the analysis is that you have to do and how you actually you know roll this out sure well we're coming up, up we're coming up against a pretty big problem of data availability all of the current science right now on the impacts of autonomous vehicles are basically just best estimated forecasts on how autonomous vehicles will operate and the effects that they'll have. The only way to really understand how autonomous vehicles will affect emissions and fuel economy is to understand how they operate under real-world conditions. And because autonomous vehicles haven't hit the roads in meaningful numbers, we, we don't have that data. Moreover, we're seeing companies be pretty protective and selective about the data that they're willing to provide to nonprofit organizations like Union of Concerned Scientists or even the government. And, you know, the, the main regulatory entity covering autonomous vehicles is the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which is part of the United States Department of Transportation. And the data that NHTSA can uh, gather is really going to be limited to safety metrics. They're not necessarily going to be gathering data on when autonomous vehicle technology is switched on on the highway, for example, how, how does that impact the vehicle's fuel economy? So in your friend's Volvo, for example, when they're on the highway and they can take their hands off the steering wheel and, and uh, gas and brake pedals, you know, does that increase fuel economy or decrease fuel economy? And if it decreases fuel economy, then, well, how much? 
and how often is the technology being used and what are the emissions impacts from that technology. So we're in this little bit of a chicken and egg situation where in order to do the analysis, we need the data, but in order to get the data, we need the cars on the road. Well, that point on data is really important. It's something that we're going to talk about in our second section on Uber, which has started selectively releasing data. But ultimately, regulators on the state level and the federal level are asking for data and not getting it much more than they're actually getting it. So there, there's a real tension here. And I, I just wonder, like, the car companies that are de- deploying these autonomous vehicles, they don't seem to have a, a, you know, much of an incentive to get a lot of data out there because they want to deploy as many vehicles as possible. Now, clearly on the safety side, they probably do have uh, more incentive because they want to convince regulators that these cars should be on the road. But on the environmental side, if if you're potentially looking at local regulations to encourage these cars to run off of renewables or to be electrified, you know, or to be to offer a certain level of efficiency, I can't imagine that a lot of these automakers want to face some of those regulations early on. So there just seems to be like an, a conflict about what type of data they want to release and what that ultimately means for what they're required to do, because they just want to get these cars on the road as quickly as possible. I'd agree with that. And I would take it further to say that the auto companies don't want to be regulated at all. <laughs> um, so our near-term ask is to increase the level of data and the amount of data that autonomous vehicle companies, both automakers and technology companies, are required to provide to the government and to the public so that the science can progress to the extent where policy can be based on real-world data, on the real-world performance of autonomous vehicle technology, both in terms of safety, emissions, congestion mitigation, um, and also uh, equitable access to make sure that this technology does not you know, increase the gap between uh, low-income and high-income populations. Before we get to the utopian vision, I want to turn it around to Catherine and Jigger and hear your thoughts. Do, how worried are you about this potential scenario? Let, let's put insurance and revenues, uh, you know, municipal revenues aside and just talk about the environmental piece of this. One could imagine a car owner driving to work and then getting dropped off at work and that car driving back to their house, parking for the day, and then coming back and doing a double trip to pick that person up from work. And that's not an unrealistic scenario. Um, There have been a lot of worries about just car sharing in general. If you have car to go and you have these other car sharing services, does it encourage people to, instead of using their bicycle or public transportation, to use an automobile? And I think there are very real questions around this. And so I don't think that the the data is very solid yet, but it is certainly concerning to me. And I just wonder, uh, Catherine or Jigger, how how worrisome this is to you and if you have any thoughts on, on this potential scenario. So the way I think about it is that I have two kids in their mid-20s and they are they both have cars, but their driving has slowed down, not slower, but it's the number of trips that they make in their cars is greatly reduced because of Uber and other ride sharing. Um, they both live in cities. They use transport technologies. I just... As people move more to cities, I can't imagine that autonomous vehicles are going to drive people to not 
live in cities if they want to live in cities. So I guess I'm not as worried about that. So I am hugely excited about this. Like, I, you know, I mean, I've been a contributor to Union of Concerned Scientists for years, and I um, has what frustrated me the most about Union of Concerned Scientists, which Josh and I have talked about, is that they don't actually have a plan around figuring out how to reduce vehicle emissions. I think they're getting better at that plan now, but 10 years ago, that plan was non-existent. I think autonomous vehicles are going to solve all the world's problems. I mean, you're talking about 35,000 people a year that die from auto vehicle deaths. Clearly, human beings are not good drivers. They want to like shave. They want to eat. They want to put on makeup. They want to do everything but actually drive their vehicle. And so autonomous vehicles lets them do all the things they want to do and not drive their vehicle. Separately, traffic is a human problem. If people were to space their vehicles out two seconds, you would get rid of traffic because traffic is not solved by extending you know, more lanes, um, doing more huge highway projects. So I think the amount of money we're going to save on infrastructure is going to be gargantuan because of autonomous vehicles. I also think we're going to be able to figure out how to subsidize um, road maintenance and, um, and, um, and public transit through autonomous vehicles because we don't want the cost per mile for driving a car to go down to 18 cents a mile, as Josh was talking about. We don't want vehicle miles traveled to go up by that much. And so I think we're going to tax the crap out of these autonomous vehicles, which I think is also amazing because we're going to get tons of additional revenue into cities. I I think for for cities and states that are well managed and have good public policy people like New York, California, Massachusetts, other places, this is going to be an an ability to really bring about an extraordinary future which, you know, I think has been dulled a lot by by human driven automobiles. And I think it's just going to be a really exciting time moving forward on the environment and on safety. So I guess that brings us, that's a great place to talk about all the positives here. And Jigger, you did a fantastic job of outlining how this could play out in a way that benefits all of us in terms of human health, uh, improving public health, improving the environment, um, helping fund public infrastructure. Josh, any thoughts on what Jigger just outlined there and what you feel is the likelihood of that scenario playing out? Yeah. So first of all, UCS does have a plan to reduce emissions from transportation. And in fact, a couple of years ago, we released a plan that we're calling Half the Oil. You can check it out at halftheoil.com. And basically, it's a realistic plan that would cut the nation's oil use in half in 20 years. And that has actually nothing to do with autonomous vehicle technology. Those improvements and those emissions and oil reductions we see coming through through improving the fuel efficiency of our cars and trucks, investing in electric vehicles, and also investing in um, uh, cellulosic biofuels or biofuels made from non-food sources. So I'd encourage you to go check out that plan to see how how we envision cutting emissions from the transportation sector. I would also agree with Jigger that it's clear autonomous vehicles will improve traffic safety. So I'll just throw out a couple stats. Um, Over 40% of the over 30,000 fatal crashes in the United States in 2015 involved some combination of alcohol, distraction, drugs, or fatigue. So robot cars, you know, they, they don't drink yet. And they don't do drugs and they don't get tired. You just wait. I've seen plenty of science (laughs) fiction movies that would lead me to believe that that's a scenario. 
<laughs> right. Well, they get buggy. I mean, it's like if every iPhone, you know, needs to be replaced in two years because it gets so slow, then, you know, what's going to happen to an autonomous vehicle software? But <laughs> regardless, you know, taking the human out of the driving equation will certainly improve uh, traffic safety. But the main question is, at, at what cost? So how is that going to impact our environment, both in terms of climate change and uh, local air pollution, like uh, smog and particulate matter? And how is it going to affect the economy? Uh, because like I mentioned earlier, uh, trucking is a really big industry in many portions of the United States, and the uh, taxi industry is a substantial employer as well. And so I think companies and regulators, to some extent, are very keen to get more autonomous vehicles on our roads because they see the huge benefit for safety improvements. But before we go too fast and before we have you know, one in four cars be either fully autonomous or semi-autonomous, we really need to figure out how they're going to impact all of these other factors that they're going to influence and ensure that there are some policy frameworks that, that um, prioritize the the best outcomes instead of these potential negative ones. I, you know, I, I just think that this is going to come together really nicely. My, my sense is, is that when you look at places like California and other places, my, it looks to me like every new car on the road will have autonomous features um, this year, and um, and most of them, most of them will have advanced autonomous features by the end of the decade. Um, and and so once that occurs, it just it feels like you can really use regulation to get to the outcomes we want to get to. Um, and my, and I think that this really is around collective good versus individual good, right? The car is the ultimate expression of an individual's rights. And once you move to an autonomous future, you start to think about things more on a collective rights basis through the sort of feature set that you want to mandate into the autonomous vehicles. And I just can't imagine that being anything but a good thing. Well, let's finish up by wrapping this all together and talking about the positive scenario. And since we are focused on energy and clean tech and the environment in this show, I would like to focus a lot on, on the environmental impact of autonomous vehicles as well. Um, so, you know, a couple stats here to, to set it off. Automation, according to NREL and the University of Maryland, could actually deliver about 15% fuel savings, according to um, research by those organizations. Uh, Goldman Sachs uh, once said in its research that driverless cars would improve fuel efficiency by more than 30%. Um, there has been other research at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab that shows renewables could um, cut greenhouse gas permissions per mile by up to 94%. Um, you know, when you look at autonomous fleets. So there are some potentially huge impacts here in terms of efficiency and cleaning up automobile fleets. But I think as we pointed out, it's going to take a lot of moving pieces to get us there. So um, how do we get there, Josh? And what might that utopian future look like in your eyes? Sure. So I, like Jigger, I'm excited for an autonomous future. I don't ever really need to drive again, I think, especially if I'm taking my annual uh, trips all the way up to Connecticut to 
to see friends and family, which take me a solid eight hours of bumper-to-bumper -bumper driving. Um, and I'll add some statistics to the ones you just mentioned when it comes to fuel consumption and emissions. So autonomous vehicle technology could change how our vehicles look and operate in, in a couple ways. Um, one is that if you have an autonomous vehicle, it might not need to be the fastest vehicle on the block or to have a big engine. And so de-emphasizing a vehicle's performance um, could drop fuel consumption by 23%. Um, and then also what's called vehicle right-sizing, which uh, could also add another 45% reduction in fuel consumption. And what that means is that, let's say you need to take a personal trip to work, you know, maybe a one to two seat autonomous vehicle could come get you and take you to work. Whereas if you needed to take a family of six somewhere, you know, an autonomous minivan could come get you. So maximizing the number of occupants per vehicle can make a big difference in terms of how our vehicle trips operate uh, efficiently. In addition, studies have shown that the use of shared autonomous vehicles in applications like Uber or Lyft will decrease the need for private vehicle ownership. So a study in Lisbon, Portugal, found that one autonomous vehicle could replace 10 private vehicles. Uh, in Singapore, they found that autonomous vehicles could cut the private fleet by a third. Uh, a study of vehicle ownership in Ann Arbor, Michigan, found that an autonomous vehicle could cut private ownership by 15%. And one particular study in Zurich, Switzerland, found that just for intercity trips, so trips within the city of Zurich, um, if there were enough shared autonomous vehicles, it would reduce 90% of private vehicle ownership. So from an environmental standpoint, cutting the number of vehicles that are uh, owned and used and maximizing the number of passengers that are in each vehicle will result in many fewer vehicles on our roads and therefore will result in fewer emissions. But in order to get there, we also need to incentivize uh, ride-sharing and ride-hailing companies to operate autonomous vehicles in a manner that maximizes occupants instead of just maximizing the number of trips they take. So right now, there's a big incentive for these vehicles to do as many trips as possible and ferry as many people as possible regardless of how many people are in the vehicle. And there's an incentive for these vehicles to operate with uh, no passengers if they have to, like, you know, go pick someone up, et cetera, et cetera. But ensuring that ride-hailing and ride-sharing companies uh, get as many butts and seats as they can could help reduce private vehicle ownership and then, as a result, could help reduce transportation emissions by cutting the number of vehicles on the road. Really uh, interesting time for autonomous vehicles and um, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Josh. Josh Goldman is a senior policy analyst for the Clean Vehicles Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. We'll link to their fuel consumption plan that he mentioned in the show notes and some other resources that Josh has written on related to autonomous vehicles. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. This is the moment of the show when we stop the tape and talk about our sponsor, Keiko New Energy. We are grateful to have Keiko as a sponsor. Keiko New Energy is one of the fastest growing inverter companies in the Americas, a result of its commitment to quality, top-notch performance, and state-of-the-art technology. Keiko produces a robust portfolio of inverters for residential, commercial, and utility-scale applications. 
leading developers continue to choose Keiko because of its superior engineering and unmatched levels of technical support and customer service. Keiko produces its inverters for the Americas in San Antonio, Texas, where 20% of its employees are U.S. military veterans. Keiko is ready to serve any installer or developer looking to maximize their solar production. You can learn more about Keiko's inverter models and its commitment to quality at keiko-newenergy.com. Thanks for their support. Our second topic is an extension of the first. It also deals with transportation planning. Uber is not known just for its rapid rise as a car-hailing service, but for the way it grew. Under the leadership of CEO Travis Kalanick, the company has abided by a simple philosophy. Act first and apologize later. Or don't apologize at all and just keep acting. Uber has been at war with taxi commissioners, governors, city planners, other car-hailing competitors, and a host of other regulators. Most recently in California, regulators got very angry when Uber started driving self-driving cars without permits. The company's now attempting to cozy up to city planners and position itself as a team player. On Sunday, it launched Uber Movement, a website with anonymous data on traffic patterns in major cities. With 2 billion trips under its belt, Uber has a lot of data it can offer, but is it truly offering the data that city planners need? So Jigger, this is an area of particular interest to you, the, the city planning side. How, how did you react to Uber's service? Do you think it's valuable? I think it's awesome. I mean, look, here's the thing. Like, I don't love the tactics of the Silicon Valley folks. I do think that, you know, just doing things and asking for forgiveness is not the right way to do things. But I think when you think about um, just how intractable this problem is in transportation and how slowly everything is moving, I just think that Uber had to do something that was bold and innovative. And I do think that it works. I mean, when you think about um, Washington, D.C., for instance, where I've spent a lot of my professional life, um, you know, like when you think about what the city planners have done there without telling anybody, they have basically banned cars in D.C. All of the new condos that have gone up, they've said you don't have to actually... Um, put in sufficient parking spots for the new people that are moving in. They've basically like jacked up all of the parking meter costs to $2 an hour or whatever it is to be able to get people to stop driving to their favorite hotspots. They've got car to go and Zipcar and they've given away a lot of the parking spaces on the street to people to do these car sharing services, right? And so at some point, like it becomes obvious to you that DC is basically trying to get you to get out of your car. But The question is, do they actually have the data necessary to convince city council members and mayors and others to go all the way, right, to go to this entire utopian future that we just talked about with autonomous vehicles? And the answer is no, right? And I think getting someone like Uber that did things not the way that I would have done things, but, you know, really shaking things up, I think is critical to be able to get it one city at least or five cities around the country to actually go to this you know, like city on the hill. Yeah, and they do have the data because they have 13 million users, 2 billion trips, and they, they'll they be able to help 
um, congestion mitigation, you know, identifying um, traffic patterns and the timing of traffic, um, improved safety. Um, it was interesting that one of the articles, Stephen, that you pointed us to was the, De- the Boston Department of Innovation and Technology said Uber and Lyft is like having a whole nother transit line. And we have to consider it when we're doing urban planning. And I think not only do you need to consider it, but you need to have them help you design your traffic plans and, and uh, design your transit. And I don't think, based on what's happened in London, I, I asked the folks at Uber, I said, you know, tell me more about this program. And they pointed to London and how they have this night tube set up where they've extended hours for the underground um, metro service. And that has been very complementary with Uber services as well. And so it doesn't have to go um, oppositional to public transit. I think it just is super complementary in developing um, plans for cities that make sense. You you mentioned the Boston experience, and that's actually a really interesting backstory to why they rolled out this service. In um, early 2015, Uber announced this big deal with uh, the mayor's office in Boston to release a bunch of data because they, you know, the the city of Boston did say exactly that. Like we had this whole new transit line that we can't see. Help us understand this. And Uber made um, a big publicity splash by saying that they were going to hand over all this data. And then a year later, uh, reporters uncovered emails that showed a very contentious relationship between the mayor's office and Uber. And Uber was basically saying, hey, you can't really share this data across agencies. You're very limited in what you can do. They were not giving the data to officials that the officials really wanted, which was like where exactly people are getting in and out of the cars. They were just using big zip code data and the zip codes here in this area are really big. So it wasn't it wasn't exactly what city officials wanted. They did extend that relationship, but um, once the reporting came out critical of Uber, showing that city officials were not happy with the relationship, Uber went behind the scenes and figured out how it could add more data, clean it up, and actually provide a real service, anonymized service for city officials. And this is the second iteration of that. So um, they have had a relationship on data sharing in the past that has not gone that well. And there's a really fascinating story locally here in Boston that resulted in this latest uh, website. But that actually gets to Uber's motivations here. And I agree with both of you that this is very important. It gets... um, you know, it gets the the data in the hands of city officials who need it, and it gets Uber in the good graces of these city officials. Um, Uber really does need to start building allies now, and this is both um, a way for it to better operationalize its fleets and you know help like work with city officials and just a good PR move. It shows that it sh- whether or not the data is the best it can provide. It shows the public that Uber is trying to work with cities to maximize or to optimize its fleets. And as it starts going into these cities with autonomous vehicles, like it is in Pittsburgh and like it's tried to do in California, they really need to start building good partnerships with regulators or else the public is going to potentially turn against Uber because people are afraid of autonomous vehicles right now. So there's a lot like there's a lot layered into this. So I'll push back on that. Like, I mean, I think that you know, I don't know that the public is against autonomous vehicles. I think they're actually, I think they love it because they don't want to drive. But I think the broader macro piece of this is 
what's more important, right? I mean, whether people love Uber or not is sort of beside the point. I think what matters more than anything is that if you look at Houston, Texas, which is largely built post-World War II, 21.3% of their entire land mass of the entire city is for surface parking lots. The entire city, right? 3.7% is garage parking and 39.7% of their entire land mass is street area, including sidewalks, right? That that jurisdiction that the city has to pay for. And so it's not surprising that cities are saying we need this data because we basically want to ban parking. We want to get rid of all of this wasted space that we're not earning property tax income on. Like we actually need to radically change the way in which our cities are funded so that we can actually have enough money to pay for universal basic income or all of the social services that we're doing, et cetera. And Uber is at the center of that because cars are by far the biggest subsidy in the entire United States economy. Yeah, so I agree with Jigger that I don't care so much if it's Uber having the relationship or anybody else. If we can improve our transportation infrastructure, increase efficiency, lower carbon um, through better planning, I think that's all to the good. And as far as you know, with Uber, with the with the price signals that they have, there there's a funny story from this weekend where my daughter said she was going to a birthday party, and I said, "Oh, where are you going?" And she said, "Well, we're going someplace downtown unless Uber has surge pricing, and then we're going to walk to this other place." And it, it was all based on price signals, and that's a behavior relationship to price signals and that changes the carbon footprint too so i think um no matter what service it is if we can increase transportation efficiency we're we're in good shape also for many cities that don't have these extraordinary people i mean in dc it was really harriet tergroning who was the head of dc's office of planning for a decade that really led the charge on this stuff but for many of these cities who don't have people like harriet you know, now that you have this data, they actually are going to go out and find somebody like that person, right? I mean, because they just have realized that that they're sitting on this gold mine that they didn't know about. And now they're saying, well, we never even thought about unlocking all of the parking subsidies we provide cars. We should absolutely hire somebody in with all this data that's being offered by Uber for free and do something about it, right? And so so I don't even know that most of the largest cities in the country were even thinking about um, needing this data. Well, there is a also a direct lesson that can apply to the electric grid here. Um, a you know data sharing is a way to optimize grid infrastructure on the utility side and for vendors and installers and distributed energy companies to get into the good graces of regulators. So a very similar experience uh, in Uber's case to what we're seeing on the distributed grid. There's a reason why electric utility companies don't want to give up that data, Stephen. I think it's going to be interesting to see how the solar industry actually potentially um, just usurp the right to share that data directly from its PPA customers. Well, this is probably a different discussion, but if we want to get into real-time pricing and nodal pricing on the distribution grid, then certainly utilities are going to have to cough up more data. And that is something that we'll tackle on a future show as well. Um, Let's get into the third topic, just briefly talking about President Barack Obama. On numerous occasions, we've debated his legacy on energy, environment, and climate policies. And I think we each have unique takes on his strengths, his weaknesses, and ultimate impact. Um, But I think we're all in general agreement that the outgoing president did a lot more to support renewables through federal policy than any other president. Jigger may disagree with that a little bit, but certainly he did a lot. 
This week, writing in Science Magazine, the president reflected on the last eight years of his energy policy. Titled The Irreversible Momentum of Clean Energy, the piece kind of echoed what we and many others have been arguing since the election. Basically, that government support was crucial for helping renewables and is still crucial for deeper decarbonization of the economy. But market forces are taking over, and the progress that we see in certain areas of this business are just going to occur no matter who sits in the White House. Make sure to read that piece. We're going to have a link to it in the show notes, as always. So as Obama reflected, it has us reflecting as well. What are the policies that this president will be known for most? Catherine, what do you think are some of the most important decisions that this president and his staff made that will carry forward into the future? Yeah, so um, over the last few weeks, and especially toward the end of December, I noticed a lot of emails from the Department of Energy about various and sundry appliance standards being put forward, um, regulatory standards. And I thought, gosh, you know, this is something that just kind of happens. And without a lot of to do, it's not like the clean power plan that's been very contentious and public. And so I reached out to ACEEE, um, the American Council on Energy Efficient Economy, and just said, like, tell me something about energy efficiency. I keep seeing these things. And what is Obama's legacy on energy efficiency? And they said, of course, energy efficiency is the cheapest option to moving toward a clean energy future that you have. Um, And they kind of said, here are three big things, cafe standards. And so for heavy duty vehicles, trucks and buses and the like, we have until 2027, the regulatory construct, Um, the light trucks and cars are up for renew and review. So that's going to be kind of in play as we move forward. But cafe standards have been huge. That was a big thing the administration did. The appliance standards are huge. And what has happened is that there was an enormous backlog from the Energy Act of 2007 that all of these standards are in statute, and most of them are consensus agreements with industry. So industry since 2007 has been shifting, but there was a backlog on actually developing the standards. Yeah, they were sitting there for like four or five years. Yes. And so those are, those have been issued that is that will take us a huge step forward they all have to be updated over the next eight years but you know a lot of those are in place and safely in place and then finally certainly the clean power plan and carbon emission standards and in that ruling while that ruling is certainly you know about to be dismantled in a thousand different ways energy efficiency is still the cheapest option for states and what ac said is the bottom line is this year alone we've saved 30 billion dollars from energy efficiency and by 2040 it'll be two and a half to 2.9 trillion dollars that is huge for this president to have done that's a good one And not something that a lot of people outside the efficiency industry know, because in like 2011, 2012, when um, this backlog had piled up, there were a lot of people really criticizing the administration. And then when um, the president started getting serious about climate, they saw these efficiency standards as part of that bigger plan. And all of a sudden, they really started acting at DOE. So people were people were pretty pissed off there for a while. And then it just kind of came together at once. Well, he's been working on it for eight years. So the other thing that happened was today they announced, or I guess it was actually December 28th, that they announced that the federal government has exceeded its goal for energy savings performance contracting, which will reduce energy spending by $8 billion over the next 18 years. So while it's a lot of this has been done in the background, they're now starting to make these announcements, and they're pretty significant. Jager, how about you? You... Do you have any positives or do you have negatives? What do you think the president will be known for or 
you know, what, what's on your list? Well, look, I mean, I want to start by saying that I think words matter. Um, that like, I think the fact that the president has used such positive words to describe what it is that we're talking about is a good, is a good thing that the thing that bothers me is his actions don't really line up with what he's taking credit for. Right. I mean, it was George W. Bush that banned the incandescent light bulb. And the vast majority of energy efficiency that's going across this country in the move to LED lighting, et cetera, came from that ban. So I just want to make sure that we're clear about that. Separately, on the energy efficiency spending for the federal government, they're going to reach $4.2 billion worth of total contracts out the door and when they have $80 billion worth of authority. So they're basically going to use something on the order of around you know, 6% or so of their entire authority and going to claim a big victory, which is sort of typical government stuff. And so, look, I'm a big fan of this president. I'm a big fan of his family. I'm a big fan of his ethics. I really am going to be sorry to see him go. But I just want to make sure that everyone recognizes that it's not this president that is the reason for our success in our industry. It's our people that are the reason for the success of our industry. And this president, like most presidents, take credit for what happens under their watch. Okay, so a couple counters to that. Um, I think that's right in terms of the president not being able to take credit for for everything that's happened. But in that piece in Science Magazine, he's pretty careful about saying that the government can't take credit for everything. And in fact, says, okay, this is what we did. Here's what we made in terms of efficiency improvements and renewable energy investments, but then calls out the private sector for acting on this stuff. So to be fair, I think the president is clear in saying in, in not taking credit for everything. Yeah, no, I'm not blaming him. And I'm not saying that he did take credit. But I do think that the people of our industry, oftentimes, like, you know, get lulled into this, you know, Obama was extraordinary, and Donald Trump's not going to be anything. My sense is that in the end, like we make our own fortune, and we're going to continue to just, you know, hit the ball out of the park over the next four years, just because, you know, that's how powerful we are as an industry. And, you know, this president, this new president-elect, I'm sure, will take credit for all of our great work over the next four years. But the industry was not that powerful in 2007 and 2008. But in fact, we were. I mean, when you think about what actually happened, I think it's important for us not to have revisionist history, right? When the Solyndra loan was made and then a big deal was made out of the Solyndra loan, the, the president and the entire administration dropped us like a hot potato. We were persona non grata and probably until 2013 during the State of the Union address when the president mentioned us again, right? And so, so like to suggest for a moment that we didn't actually make our own fortune is crazy. We did. The president thought that we were radioactive for about three years. Okay. So one thing I want to jump in on is the Recovery Act. So the stimulus package, which ended up being over $800 billion. And it would have been nice if it had been an even better, really set industry on a course where we where they required investment from utilities. They spurred action. I think that teed everybody up. The loan guarantee program, other than Solyndra, was enormously successful. So, you know, that has been, that has borne out to be true. I don't even want to have an argument about that. I think the Recovery Act made people step up and gave them the incentives to step up. Remember in 2010, the midterm election, and Congress completely flipped? 
That is why we were unable to get as much done as we could, because Congress made a pact to stop the president every single step of the way. So what did the president have to do? He had to figure out, what can I do within my own authorities? I can do appliance standards, which are backlogged. I can do performance contracting as quickly as I possibly can. And I can negotiate global agreements, which he's done. And so I feel like he has done everything he could. I agree. When John Podesta came in and kicked him in the ass, I think he did a lot. I completely agree with the fact that China got done because John Podesta came in and others. Like, look, I'm I'm a big fan of this president on a personal level, but I'm just saying, like, I don't want our industry to believe that it was this president's force of will, that this was even a top five goal for him. Right. I mean, I think that it became a bigger goal when Podesta came in and said, look, you really need to make this a goal. But I think in the stimulus bill, you and I both know that it was Nancy Pelosi that got 1603 into that. It wasn't like the transition team that was pushing that. And so I just think even if John McCain were president, you know, we would have gotten the 1603 grant program because we needed a stimulus. The economy was in free fall. Everyone agreed from Republicans and Democrats. And Nancy Pelosi would have been in the Congress to put that in regardless. But eventually, when the president did decide to start publicly talking about this and and sort of came back around to clean tech after you know a couple of years of trying to stay away from it, the pulling the levers of government to accelerate automobile efficiency standards, appliance standards, um, you know, to to make sure that the loan guarantee program was operating. You know, I know that was actually well before he yeah it was put in place during kind of, Bush. Right, 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 but. That program was not moving very effectively under Bush, and the Obama administration revisited it and, you know, like actually got deals out the door for better or worse. I think there's an like a there's a clear argument for the effectiveness of that program, but like they got deals done. And even though it was put in place by the the, the George W. Bush administration, the Obama administration pulled the levers of government to do those deals. Same thing with efficiency standards. A lot of those were sitting there, but they decided, okay, how are we going to get this stuff done? And I think that's that's really important. Absolutely. I just want to make sure that it's clear that like there are 208,000 people in this oil industry, almost 100,000 people in wind, many, many more in LED lighting and other places who've worked their butt off over eight years to get us to where we are today in EVs, LEDs, solar, wind, battery storage, etc. And I think they're going to continue to work their butt off over the next eight years. And I think you're going to see it's just as successful over the next eight years. And yes, when there's a tie out there and we need things to go our way, it's entirely possible that the Trump administration is not going to go our way. Like, for instance, the IRS ruling that we want on storage or some of these other pieces. But I just feel like it's important for everyone to recognize that we did this, right? In the same way that Obama said, you have to push me to do the right thing. We pushed him to do the right thing. It wasn't him dragging us along. Yeah, he did say that in his farewell speech. He said, I wasn't the one who was the change. You were the one who made the change. And that's important, but it was really critical that he and the administration and all the people who worked so hard for him helped set the course and create a sense of certainty. The Clean Power Plan really put a stake in the ground for investors, for utilities, for states to really change to to continue to change the way they were investing. Now I'm not I'm not to, not to downplay what the whole clean energy um, technology and application community is doing at all, but having some certainty really does make a difference. Okay, well that that's uh I think that's sufficient for now. We'll probably bring President Obama back into future conversations. Um, 
Go read his piece in Science Magazine. We'll link to it as well. It's just, it's a, I think it's a fantastic piece. It was, he's, it was fantastic. Yeah. And he's I done a couple agree. others, um, I think on justice reform and something else. Um, oh, healthcare. So he's uh, making the rounds in his last week in office. Let's tell our listeners something they may not know. And Catherine, I'd like to hear your story. What is it? Sure. I have two things I want people to read. The first is Hawaiian Electric Company's Power Supply Improvement Plan. And that sounds more boring than it is. It's really about how they're going to attain Hawaii's 100% RPS goal before their 2045 deadline. So remember, HECO was about to be bought by NextEra. That was stopped by the Public Utility Commission. And HECO said, all right, we'll figure this out. And this is without LNG. So there's no liquefied natural gas, which NextEra was bringing into their plan, into this one. And it looks like they could meet their 100% renewables by 2040. So it's worth reading how they plan to do that. Secondly, I wanted to bring to everybody's attention that the Quadrennial Energy Review 1.2 was just issued um, late last week, and it really does focus a lot on distributed energy resources. So it's worth a look. And if everybody says, oh, this is part of the outgoing secretary's last hurrah, um, that is true. At the same time, the Senate and House are looking at dusting off the energy bill from last year. There's not much dust that's actually collected on it. And revisiting doing an energy bill. There's a lot of appetite to get something done, kind of a lot of pent-up energy, so to speak, So because they just didn't get in, done last year. And if they can use this set of analysis to, to inform that, I think that will be helpful, and I think it will be seen as a useful document. So something else to read. It's a it's a it's a big one to bite off the Quadrennial Energy Review. Um, you can read Jeff St. John's coverage of that. He picks out some of the more interesting grid modernization recommendations in that report. Uh, so go check that out on GreenTechMedia.com. Jigger, what's on your plate? Well, I mean, the first thing was just a aha thing, which is there's a book on Amazon about Donald J. Trump being an environmental hero. It was published on September 13, 2016. I, haven't... I got back from vacation, and that was the first thing that I saw posted when I signed into social media. You had posted this <laughs> this link to, the, to that uh, book, which I thought was quite funny. I have not read the book, and nor do I plan to read the book, because I'm sure it's probably blank. Um, but it's just crazy to me how like how much fake news can get around. Um, so I really wanted to talk about... Um, China. So China announced uh, around the first of the year that they're going to invest $360 billion over the next five-year plan into renewable energy investments to convert an additional 15% of their entire electricity grid to clean energy, which I think is just such an extraordinary announcement. And it, it just goes to show you that we're now in a place where People like China, and I think the U.S. could do the same thing, are viewing clean energy through the lens of infrastructure and jobs and economic development. And it's just such a milestone for us. This, I think, is the first time in the history of the energy gang that we both have the same story for Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I was going to mention the (laughs) same thing. Uh, And I'll just add to it, actually, because I thought that number was really stark. Um, but Bloomberg New Energy Finance came out with their numbers on global investment too, and they show an actual dip in 2016 of 18%, falling from 
348.5 billion in 2015 to 287.5 billion in 2016. And so some of that is related to falling equipment prices, right? Which is a good thing. Almost all yeah. of it. So they're not assuming a reduction in megawatts. They're just assuming a reduction in Definitely. Cost. But there was a big drop in Chinese investment and Japanese investment, and Chinese investment fell 26%. Um, you know, it's not all bad you know, because of uh, falling equipment prices, obviously. Ch but China's been building a lot of projects that have been getting curtailed, too, and is also heavily subsidizing uh, its manufacturers. So, like, a slowdown doesn't necessarily mean a troubled market and could result in some good things because, you know, their project development is overheating and their grid can't handle many of the projects. But that $360 billion number that they, uh, that they announced in the beginning of January was just, like, remarkable. And, and, um... In order to make sure those dollars are spent wisely, I think it needs to improve its grid to accommodate all these new projects. Some of it could go to waste if uh, if they don't, but it sounds like that money is going to be spent across the board. And I definitely agree with you that it is a pretty remarkable sign that a company, a country like China, sees this as a really important piece of its infrastructure plan, and important to consider as China becomes more important on the world stage. And the U.S. potentially takes a step back politically on climate and clean tech internationally. This is a diplomatic issue now. So it's all wrapped into some pretty interesting storylines. Since we have the same story, let me add one from CES, from, you know, the Consumer Electronics Show that uh, our good friend Julia Piper attended. Um, you know, I think that what really came out of that show was how they were putting in um, remote control of all appliances on the show floor, whether it was your refrigerator, your toaster, your like anything you had, you could remotely control it from your phone. I think that harkens to demand response. And so I thought that was a huge thing that came out of the CES this year. I'm still waiting for blockchain and so to control your toaster. <laughs> That's what we talked about with Paul Brody. Next year's CES is going to be all about blockchain. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> Oh, I agree. God. All right, well, that's it for the show. Thanks to Keiko New Energy for sponsoring the show. Great to have them as the kickoff sponsor this year. You can get all of our back episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, NPR One, anywhere you get your podcasts. We love to hear from you. We uh, put out a tweet yesterday asking for story ideas. We definitely want to hear some big topics or you know nitty gritty in the weeds topics that you want to hear us discuss throughout the coming year. So send an email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com or just send us a tweet uh, individually to our accounts or to the Energy Gang account. Catherine, happy new year. Great to talk to you again. Welcome back. And here's to a great year. Yeah, thanks. You too. Jigger, fantastic having another back and forth with you. I'm looking forward to a really fun year this year. I think 2017 is going to make all of us stand up a little straighter. <laughs> I think so. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang. We'll catch you next week.